going to continue our study, chapter 21, for those of you who are following along in the workbooks, God is truthful. Let's, let's open with another word of prayer for our time, and as I pray, I would ask that you would pray and ask God that He would help us to see Him. And to know Him more. You can, you can pray that while I'm praying. And it would be a, a united voice among us that we, we want to learn and see more of our God. So let's pray together. Father, we have every reason to believe that You want Your people to know You. That it is Your desire to reveal Yourself. And so we ask that You would do that for us. Lord... As always, we don't need much. Lord, if we could just have a, a, another small glimpse, it would be more than enough to propel us into the week and, and into even the rest of our lives if we could just see something of Your glory. So please help us and, and speak to us through Your Word. And Lord, if there be any, any attitude in us or spirit among us that seeks to glory in this knowledge or that would want to exalt ourselves because we have learned something new. I pray that you would help us to mortify that, and to put that to death, and glory only in this, that we know you, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. It's in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. So we're considering uh, the subject of the, the truthfulness of God. Last week we began to consider sort of the, the broader topic of the integrity of God or trueness of God, or I've also in the past used the term veracity, the veracity of God. Uh, hopefully you understand that this truth is a great truth, very important. Like all of the attributes of God, we would say we can't lose any of them, but with regard to the truth and God being true and God being the truth, if He's not truth, we might as well go home. Um, but because He is truth, all of our endeavors and all of our pursuits in, in searching what He has revealed to know Him can be profitable because He's revealed Himself as the God who is truth. We saw that God is true or genuine, meaning that He is the only real, authentic God. That was the way that it was opened up in the last chapter. We saw that all other gods are false, that all gods and idols made by men are really miserable substitutes for the one true God. And as we, as we delve into the reality of what idolatry looks like and what it is, we, we all recognize it doesn't make any sense. It's silly. We saw that idols require a fashioner, while the one true God is the creator of everything. Idols need support while the one true God upholds everything by the word of His power. He needs no support. He Himself is the support. We saw that idols need a craftsman to give them the appearance of life, while the one true God gives life and breath to everything. And so to trade the true God for, for a lifeless idol, it's irrational. It doesn't make any sense, and yet very often we do that because as we, we saw in the closing, anything that we give our thoughts and our attention to 
as a replacement for God or anything that we, we trust in or rely upon or give ourselves to as a substitute for God, that is an idol. We are committing that foolishness that we all recognize. So hopefully it's clear that that, that is really the folly of sin. That's what sin leads us into is that type of, that type of irrationality. So now we're moving to the second heading under that general assertion God is true, and that is specifically that God is truthful. So this is sort of the next level in that same truth. So I'll, I'll pick up reading there in the chapter at the introduction. It says, Having considered the authenticity of God, we will now turn our attention toward His truthfulness. Here He's going to state the attributes succinctly. God is... Exactly as He reveals Himself, that is, He is true. Saw that last week. Additionally, everything is always exactly as He says. God is truthful. God only acts and speaks within the realm of truth. His knowledge is perfect and therefore never mistaken. His character is holy and righteous. He therefore cannot lie or distort the truth. Misrepresentation and falsehood are impossible with God. This truth should promote in us the greatest confidence in God and His Word. So then we pick up with the first heading where we're going to start. The names attributed to God, the, the assertions of God in the form of a name. And we'll begin with Isaiah sixty-five sixteen. And here we see that God is given the title, The God of Truth. Isaiah 65, 16. Because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hidden from my sight. There, again, he's referred to as the God of truth. A parallel text, we, we won't turn there, this one's shorter, but it says the same thing. We'll reference it again later. Psalm 31, 5, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. He is the God of truth. In Isaiah 65, 16, the word truth is translated from the Hebrew word, Amen. Literally, He is the God of the Amen, or the God who says Amen, which means, so it be, or so be it, to all of His promises. And then in Psalm 31, 5, the word truth is translated from the Hebrew word, Ameth, which can also denote faithfulness. Remember, there is a, a relationship between the, the words true or truth and faithfulness because God being truthful, He is worthy of our faith. And in that sense, He would be faithful. Not that He Himself is full of faith, but that He is worthy of our faith or our trust. So there's a relationship there. You have ransomed me, O God, or O Lord, God of truth or God of faithfulness. You have been faithful to ransom me. Now, again, we're going to come back to that. It's really a pretty spectacular theological um, Truth contained in that verse. We'll see it in a minute. The God of truth. Then we see simply the phrase, God is true in John 
333. You can turn there. John 333. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. God is true. Now, the New Testament was written in Greek. So now we're learning the Greek term. This word comes from the Greek word aletheis, which may denote that God is real or genuine, or that God is truthful. And he says the context favors the latter. He's truthful. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is truthful. He's telling the truth, or he has told the truth. He has fulfilled his promise. So, now from these, these verses and these names, we can deduce multiple things. First, there is a God. We see that in, in, the, in the language and the, the ideas that are being conveyed here. You see, the argument would go like this. If there is a God, then He must be the fullness of all perfection. It is a part of His perfection to be known. It would be an imperfect God if He were a God that could not be known. He couldn't make Himself known. That would be an imperfection. But the fact of the matter is, there is a God. He is full and and complete perfection. Therefore, He has made Himself known. And that's what we see here. We have a God who can be known. He has also made Himself known. And in these texts, we see He's actually revealed specific things to men. He's made promises to men. And He always fulfills His promises. God never embellishes. And He also never undersells a matter. Now, He does accommodate what He says to our human capacities, but He never undersells. He always states it. It is always a perfect truth from the God who is perfect. He's made Himself known in this way. He, does, he, he hasn't merely said, I'm a God or, or there is a God, but He makes Himself known specifically in that He reveals Himself to us and makes promises to us. God can only say and do and be that which is in accord with Himself and the fullness of His character and attributes. He can only be trustworthy. Now, I told you we'd come back to Psalm 31. When I read that, into your hand I commit my spirit, where does that take you? That takes you to the cross. That's Christ's words from the cross. So so think of this. You've got the God-man hanging on the cross and He says, into your hand... I commit my spirit. He, Christ Himself, in His humanity, leaning upon what? The faithfulness of God. He knew, Father, I'm going into this and I'm laying myself into Your hands knowing that His Father would fulfill the plans that He had made for and promises that He had made with His Son in the covenant of redemption to see to it that He would not see corruption. Now what does that imply for us? Should we also not be willing to trust in God. We have far less severe trials than Christ was enduring when He was hanging on the cross. He trusted in God. Therefore, we the lesser should obviously trust in God. Alright, the next section, number two, gives us two texts. The first one is Numbers twenty-three nineteen. You can turn there. 
Numbers 23:19 and and be ready to turn to 1 Samuel 15 Numbers 23:19 says God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent Has he said and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not make it good He's not a man that he should lie. And then 1 Samuel 15, 29. Also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. For he is not a man that he should change his mind. Now the note there says, in relation to these verses, God never lies, never repents, or changes his purpose. He's not like men who continually change their minds. Men are often mistaken, frequently distort the truth. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you're having a conversation, maybe the conversation is over, maybe you're still in the middle, middle of it, and you're really just instantaneously embarrassed that you've used some words that probably were just a little too much? Husbands, you ever talk to your wives and use words like never or always? That, that's really not true. But we do that. We, we, we distort. We embellish from time to time. We, we, we go too far. Never, never so with God. Always perfect in truth and everything that He says. He says, God is true and His Word is immutable. That is unchanging and unchangeable truth. And notice that in both of those texts, what was the, the point that was, that was the contrast? God is not a man or a son of man. He is not a man. In other words, he's almost stating this as a sort of a, an essential quality, and I would say an essential quality of the fallen man, fallen nature, is that we're just known to be liars. We come forth from the womb speaking lies. We're deceptive in our, in our speech. Not God. It is God's nature to be truthful. He's not, he doesn't have the nature of a man. He's completely different. He's truthful. We could say... God is holy, therefore He's truthful. Number three, the truthfulness of God has many implications, but one of the most important is that we can trust Him and His every promise. What do the following statements teach us about this truth? The first is Titus 1 verse 2. And these are fill in the blank, so if, you, if you've got it there, you don't have to turn, but I'm going to turn just for the sake of turning. Titus chapter 1, verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. So God cannot lie. He cannot lie because He can't do anything that would contradict His holy and righteous nature. That's what we just saw. Next is Hebrews 6, verses 17 and 18. Hebrews 6, 17 and 18. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of His purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. 
we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. God cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie. He points out the word impossible comes from the Greek word adunatos. There he explains it, ah, which is a negation like we would say an atheist, ah, theist, negative, no, and then dunatos, strong, mighty, or powerful, and it may be translated unable or powerless. In other words, God doesn't have the ability to lie. Even in some universe that doesn't exist, if we could say God wanted to lie, He couldn't. He's unable to lie because it would be contrary to His character. Wanting to lie would also be contrary to His character. Now, what impact should this have? Well, in life, we have to understand that there are many things unknown to us. And there are many uh, voices that are willing to give counsel in, in many different areas of life. You can, you can Google something. You can, you can phone a friend. You might have three friends, and three friends might all say three different things. You can Google something. You're going to see 12 different things. You can, you can pretty much Google and find anybody to come in and concur and affirm what you already felt like you wanted to believe anyway. All of these voices that give counsel and many uh, competing pressures that will try to push you in a general direction with regard to circumstances or decisions that you have to make. But none of these things are God. So, how should we live? God's Word must be the starting block for everything that we do. You know, in a race, the runners begin on a starting block. They bend over, they put their feet in the blocks, and they're, that's, that's the, they're, they're propel, propelled from pushing off of those blocks. That's how the Word of God ought to be. We rest in, in God's Word, and from there we propel into life and trusting in what God has said. Trust that God cannot and will not lie and take refuge in that. Here, here's the thing. We are to obey God's Word... And then, at that point, again, you've got all these other voices, all these other ideas. Okay? Just let them go. Obey God's Word. Entrust yourself to Him as we just saw Christ did. Entrust yourself to God at that point. And all of these these other voices and threats and pressures, you say, that's not up to me. That's not uh, anything I'm going to regard any longer. I have to rest in the fact that I'm obeying God. Well, it might be uh, financially difficult. That's not my concern. Well, such and such a family member might think this or that. That's not my concern. I trust the Lord. I obey Him. Let Him handle the rest. That's how we should live. Trust Him. He's trustworthy. Number four, our God is the God of truth. Therefore, it is no surprise that His works and words are true. What do the following scriptures teach us about this principle? Daniel 4.37. Daniel 4.37. These are the words of Nebuchadnezzar. Have you noticed how many times we come back to Daniel 4 and God's dealing with Nebuchadnezzar in studying the attributes of God? Daniel 4.37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the King of heaven, for all His works are true and His ways are just, and He is able to humble those who walk in pride. Now when He says the King of heaven, He's talking about God. 
When he talks about those who walk in pride, he's talking about himself. You remember Nebuchadnezzar literally in the story was just previously walking in pride. Is, this, is not this great Babylon? God humbles him. He comes to himself and he says, All of his works are true. The comment says the word true comes from the Hebrew word keshot or keshot, which is literally translated truth. The humbled king Nebuchadnezzar recognized that God's works were truth, even his judgments. God had just bent him over like an animal and made him eat grass. He came to himself and he said, he didn't do anything wrong. He was right. What he did was correct. Nebuchadnezzar knew that God had not dealt too severely with him. He had been dealt with in truth and justice according to the standards of God. His works are true. Psalm 111 verse 7. Psalm 111, verse 7. The works of His hand, hands are truth and justice. All His precepts are sure. There's that word again, the Hebrew word emeth, which denotes firmness or faithfulness. One commentator on this verse says, the works of His hands being truth and justice, that means they are exactly agreeable to His word or promises and to the rules of eternal justice. Everything that God does is truth or the works of His hands are truth and justice. Now another angle, and I don't know that we've ever talked about this here, but another angle that we could add here is the reality of general revelation as the works of God. When we say the works and word of God, well, we're, we're talking about two, the two books of revelation. General revelation, special revelation. General revelation being what's revealed in, in creation. Sometimes we call it natural revelation. Have you ever stopped to, to note or recognize that general revelation or natural revelation, the revelation of God in the things that He has made is infallibly true revelation. It's infallible. General revelation or natural revelation is infallible. Providence is infallible. It all perfectly reveals something about God. Now, our interpretation of these things is not infallible. It's just like with Scripture. Scripture's infallible. That doesn't make me infallible just because I hold it in my hands. This also doesn't mean that our role as a secondary agent is not for our part uh, or is for our part uh, infallible. In other words, let's say providentially looking back in the past, I committed some sin. I was guilty of some sin. Well, in the providence of God, that has perfectly revealed some truth infallibly. That doesn't mean that because I played a part in it, therefore I was infallible in that. No, I was sinful. Well, what does that mean? infallibly reveal. What God has said, man is sinful. You see, God's works are truth. But even our, our fallibility, our failures and our ignorance and our sin, that is all an infallible revelation and an affirmation of what God has said in His Word. 
God's Word is affirmed everywhere you go, in every conversation, with every person you run into, in every place you can look and you can say, God's Word is affirmed there, 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 there. Everything perfectly revealing what we have written in special revelation. So Psalm 119 is the next passage, Psalm 119, 142. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. Your law is truth. And that is the same word, meaning firm or faithful. Your law is firm and faithful. It's to be trusted in, rested in. Psalm 119, verse 151. You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. They're firm. They're faithful. Verse 160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Same word, firm or faithful. That, that word sum means the, the total number or the full count of a thing. In other words, all of God's word, when viewed as a whole, is truth. And every little piece of it viewed separately is truth. It's firm. There's no error in it. You want solid footing for life. You want solid footing for morality. Look to God's Word. And then John 17, 17, a text in the New Testament from Christ Himself. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. There's the Greek word aletheia, which may also denote truthfulness and faithfulness. All that comes from the mouth of God is truth. It's truthful. It's worth trusting. And this is how we are sanctified, not by giving ourselves to lies, but by giving ourselves to the infallible, dependable truth. There are many things that we can give our mind to that we might put in the category of information. And when we get done with them, we're stupider. It hasn't helped us at all. Maybe maybe we're not stupider, but we're not made more holy. Very often, we're we're more anxious, more worried, more stressed, more, more unsettled. Rest in God's Word. Trust in God's Word, God's truth. It sanctifies. It helps us to grow. And it makes us not get stupider. Number five. Our God is the God of truth. And He has revealed His truth to men in various ways. According to the following scriptures, what are the three principal ways in which God reveals truth to all men, especially to His people? I'll say them from the outset. It's through His Word through His Son, and then by His Holy Spirit, specifically through the Word and exalting the Son. They all, they all work together. So the first text is 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. God reveals His truth through the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3. Sixteen and 17, all Scripture is inspired by God 
and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now the note there explains this word inspired. Some of you have breathed out by God. The word inspired comes from the Greek word theopneustos, which literally means God breathed. Since the Scriptures proceed out of the mouth of God, Matthew 4.4, they are totally reliable. It is important to note that the Scriptures not only teach the truth, but they also reprove us when we have strayed from the truth, give us correction so that we might return to the truth and provide the training we need to be righteous. You, you never, in, in take, pointing your children to the Scriptures, you never have to bring them back and say, now listen, that's not really true. It's not really like that. There are many things that, our, that children might read that you'd have to say, okay, let's make sure there's a clear line between reality and non-reality, truth and, truth and error. With the Scriptures, you never have to do that. Well, let, me, let me explain. Let me break this down. No, it's truth. Read it for what it is and just have fun with it. Run away with it. It's truth. And it does all these wonderful things for us by the power of the Spirit. Truth comes from God. And truth that comes from God reveals God. God as He is and what His desires are for us. That text in, in Jeremiah that says, you know, let, let the man boast in this that he knows me. And then it says later on, that I delight in these things. In other words, not just knowing God as a, a, a being, but knowing what God actually delights in as a part of knowing God. When we, we come to the Scriptures, it doesn't just say, hey, there's a God and He's kind of like this. Well, it's, there's a God. Here's what He's like. Here's who He is. But here's what He desires and here's what He would have for you. His desires for us. The Scriptures are useful to us because they hem us in and they guide us into the way that God would have us to live. The Scriptures also provide us with what we need in the way of truth to do what God has called us to do. Imagine, you don't have to imagine, just think about this a wonderful gift that we have in the Word of God. There is a God. How do I know? Well, He's revealed Himself. This God has clear desires and standards. How do I know? He's revealed them. Well, how can I ever meet them? Well, He's told us right here. He, he gives everything. Here's who I am. Here's what I desire. Here's how to do it. All of it. He gives it to us. And we can know what God desires. We don't have to live our lives wondering, well, is He, is he upset with me? Is He angry with me? Am I doing everything right? No. We'll follow His Word. It's trustworthy. And that's how He's revealed His truth in His Word. Secondly, He reveals truth through His Son. Turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 17. For the law was given through Moses... Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The note is, I think, helpful. The word realized in verse 17 comes from the Greek word genomai, which would probably be better translated came. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John is not telling us 
That the Old Testament was law, or, or the Old Testament law was bad, or without grace, without truth. He's not saying the Old Testament way oh, was just terrible and awful, and finally the good way has come. He's not saying that. He's simply stating that Jesus was a far superior revelation of grace and truth than the law given through Moses could ever be. Jesus was the embodiment of grace and truth in Himself, of power and revelation. And this is God revealing Himself to us through His Son. John 14, verse 6 is the next text. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is the truth. This declaration is of great importance. Jesus is the greatest revelation of God's truth to man because He is the truth. He's not just a teacher of the truth. He is the very embodiment of the truth. He is the very essence of all truth and the fountain of all truth. He is truth incarnate. To hear Him is to hear truth. To see Him is to see truth in action. In Ephesians 4.21, the Apostle Paul testifies that the truth is, quote, in Jesus. This is in line with what we saw this morning. Because He is the very wisdom of God. And it's difficult for us to, to put these things together, ideas like truth... And then a figure, an individual. And that's because it's practically incomprehensible for us. But this is what the Scriptures teach. He is the truth. He is the origin and fountain of all things, of reality itself. It comes out of the Son of God, Christ. All things are from Him, through Him, and to Him. He is the truth. Nothing makes sense apart from Christ. All things find their sense and their reason in Christ. As Hebrews 1 says, God has spoken to us by His Son. Again, we, we struggle with that. I, I speak to you with my mouth and, and words and, and audio and you, you listen. Well, God has spoken. Again, God doesn't have vocal cords. He's revealed something of Himself, out of Himself to us by His Son. In Christ, He reveals Himself, He reveals His power, He reveals His plan of salvation. I mean, you could, you could sit, get a piece of paper out and just begin to write down all of the truth, truths that we could name about God in light of the fact that Jesus Christ has come into the world and revealed God to us. What do we see happening in the life of Christ? What kind of man is He? He's revealing God to us. He's teaching us something about God. So God reveals truth through His Son. And then God reveal, reveals His truth through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. You can, I guess you're still in John 14, verses 16 and 17. Christ says, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him, because He abides with you and will be in you. Chapter 15, verse 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth, 
who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. John 16, 13. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Like the Father and the Son, truth is an attribute of the Holy Spirit and a characteristic of all that comes from Him. For this reason, the Apostle John draws a contrast in 1 John 4, 6 between the Spirit of truth and the Spirit of error. He's called the Spirit of truth. So we learn that all that the Holy Spirit does and all that the Holy Spirit reveals is according to truth. The same truth set out in Scripture, the same truth revealed in Christ, it all comes together as, as really we could say one complete and total revelation of God. The Spirit, says Christ, is in you. And He testifies about Christ Himself in the believer. So the Holy Spirit is not to be thought of as this lone ranger or lone entity floating around out here somewhere that, that comes and brings something um, in addition to or different from that which has been revealed from the Father or revealed in the Son. We, we talked, I think we talked at the beginning of this about the idea of inseparable operations. All the works of God out of Himself are one. It's Father, Son, and Spirit doing one thing. We talked about the oneness of God. So the Spirit of truth always reveals what is in direct alignment with the, the, the revelation of the Father or the revelation uh, of God in Christ, they are one, one full revelation through the Spirit. John 16, 13. Again, we just read this one. I'll read it again. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. I'll read this note. It is extremely important that we understand the immediate context of this verse. Jesus is speaking directly to His apostles whom the Spirit would move to write the Holy Scriptures. 2 Peter 1.21 The Spirit's work through the apostles ensured that the New Testament Scriptures would be inspired or God-breathed. We saw that a minute ago. And totally reliable. At the same time, the Spirit also leads God's people in the truth by illuminating their minds to understand the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13. It is important to remember that the Spirit will never guide the believer to any so-called truth that contradicts the grammar of what he has written in the Scriptures. The Spirit is never, never gives anything contrary or, or uh, in addition to or contradictory to what's written in the Scriptures. Now, the Spirit speaks through the Scriptures. If Christ is God with us, Emmanuel, then the Spirit is God in us. And as He opens up the Scriptures to us, you're going to have to read it, but as He opens up the Scriptures to us, He will also, over time, make an effectual, mind-renewing transformation in us which brings us from who we are in Adam along the process of being made into the image of Christ. He does this through the Word. The Spirit, by the Word, brings the perfection of the work of God 
or brings to perfection the work of God in us. Again, what a gift we have in the gift of the Holy Spirit and in the Word of God. He does this for us. Now, what's an application? If you, if you don't have a regular, consistent, methodical habit of reading the Scriptures, that must be implemented. You, you don't have time to wait until Tuesday. You don't have time. You must be in the Scriptures. For me, to set this habit as a young man, I determined I will not eat, I will not put food in my mouth until I have read the Scriptures. I developed the habit. I, had, I formed that habit in my daily practice. Whatever you got to do. Tie a string around your finger, draw a dot on your forehead, whatever it is, that must be implemented as a practice daily. This is how we grow. You can't grow as a believer apart from, again, regular, consistent, systematic, methodical study and reading of the Word of God. It's a great gift and we should, we should act like we believe that it is. So, some concluding thoughts on this. What God says about Himself is true. If you read something about God in the Scriptures, it's true. It's not, it's not an embellishment. It's not an overstatement. It's true. Believe it. What God says about sin is true. A lot of times we think, well, yeah, well, God has said this, but really, I, I think it's more like this. No, your sin is what God says that it is, not what you think that it is. What God says about sin is true. What God says about His willingness to save sinners is true. When Christ said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest, He didn't end with, I'm just messing. I'm just kidding. I didn't, I didn't mean really come to me. No, He meant it. It's truth. This is God's plan. He, he, he means it. It's true. What God says about Christ, His Son, is true. When, when we read that God says He was put forth as a propitiation to be received by faith, that's what He meant. Put Him forth. Receive Him. What God says about repentance and faith is true. Whoever believes on the name of the Son of God will be saved. It's truth. And it can be depended upon. What God says about eternity is true. Eternity in hell, that's, that's not a... That's not just illustrative language. No, it's true. It's real. What the Bible says about heaven, it's true. It's true. It's accommodated to our comprehension. So when you read the Scriptures and the things that they say about heaven, you say, man, I can't even imagine it. Well, that's true. That's the truth. You can't even believe. You can't imagine what it will be like. But it's true. While all the world searches for truth and sometimes stumbles upon the general revelation of truth which courses through all of creation, we do have perfect, unchanging, special truth from God about the way of life and salvation in Christ in His Word. We would be fools to believe a lie, would we not? We would all say that, that doesn't make any sense to believe a lie. We would also be fools to ignore the truth. To say, I've got a copy of the truth of God's Word right there, but I've got some other things that are a little more important than that. I can't find time. No, you've got to make it. You've got to get up. You've got to do it. 
you, we would agree on, on the surface, we would say, well, that, that sounds silly to say there's the truth, of the, the revelation of God right over there, but, but I got some things over here that need to be taken care of. That doesn't make any sense. We'd be fools to ignore the truth. Thank God that we have truth from the true God. Amen? Let's stand and we'll sing hymn number 27 to be dismissed.